The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 210. Are you ready to think locally and act locally? Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And, of course, subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast at Brian McClanahan. Go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. Give me an email address, and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can also support The Brian McClanahan Show there by going to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. Anything you do contribute is greatly appreciated. You can also support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. That's mclanahanacademy.com. I've got five classes there you can purchase and one forthcoming in the spring. Reconstruction and Recreation is going to be an awesome class. Essentially, it's part two of my war class. Uh, You've got a lot of good stuff there. I give you 10% off if you're a podcast listener just for using the coupon code PODCAST. So go ahead and use it, get that 10% off. But, of course, if you do enroll and it's free to do so, you do get the best deals on forthcoming classes. So uh, go ahead and enroll free of charge. Don't worry about it. You just uh, get on that email list, and then when a new class comes out, you'll get a notification with the best price. Go on and purchase that new class, and you're good to go. Lots of great, satisfied customers on mclanahanacademy.com. You can also support the show by going to Learn True T-R-U-E, LearnTrueHistory.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. So I've got a lot of, I teach a couple of courses there with a lot of great instructors. Tom Woods, Kevin Goodsman, Brad Berzer, Jason Jewell, uh, Bob Murphy, Jeff Herbner, a whole lot of great people. It's a 20-plus classes, a lot of bang for the buck. So you're going to want to get that. And you can always get your Brian McClanahan Show gear at redbubble.com, redbubble.com. Just do a search for my name, Brian, B-R-I-O-N, McClanahan at Redbubble. And you can go ahead and get your red bubble gear. So it's great stuff. All kinds of good, cool things with my logo on it. And of course, if you do like this podcast, share it around on social media, rank it and like it on uh, iTunes and other places, because the more listeners, the better. And uh, the more listeners, the more we can help people think locally and act locally. This is a movement. Now, this is not just a podcast. This is a movement. Think locally, act locally. All right. I want to talk about a piece that I saw uh, online. It was published by the American Institute for Economic Research. It's written by Phil Magnus. If you don't know who Phil Magnus is, Phil Magnus is a fellow there. But he's also written a great book on Lincoln. It's uh, Colonization After Emancipation. And it's a fantastic read. It's a good Lincoln myth bashing work. You're going to want to pick it up and get it. Paperback, I think you can get it for around 20 bucks or less on Amazon. So go out and get that. It's one of those books that will um, that shatters a lot of myths about Abraham Lincoln. And Magnus is generally, I mean, he's, he's a libertarian. Um, and um, he, he does great research. He's a good writer. Um, I think that uh, he is someone that uh, has really fallen in that Lincoln niche. He, he, he knows Lincoln very well. And so uh, someone you should pay attention to when he writes about Abraham Lincoln. Um, so go on out and get that. Um, it's a... Uh, a worthwhile time, worthwhile read for the 20 bucks you'll spend on it. Colonization after emancipation. But this particular piece that I've got in my hand right here, right here, as in my hot off the press in my hand is my formerly nicotine-stained fingers. Rush Limbaugh nonsense. In my hand right here I have this piece, and it's entitled The Real History of the American Income Tax. Now, 
I want to dive into a couple issues here. I'm going to read most of this, but I want to draw, dive into a couple of issues with this piece. Not not critiques, but something where it's it scratches the surface just a little bit too much. And there's some things going on here that are important in this particular piece and understanding the American income tax and understanding why we have the American income tax, why we have this uh, this cult in many ways surrounding the American income tax. I mean, and this is born, this piece was published on uh, Valentine's Day, right? It's February 14th, so a couple of weeks now, almost. Week, I guess, week old. Uh, and um, it seems like Valentine's Day was so long ago, but it was just last week. So we have this piece, uh, and um, it's born out of the fact that the progressives now are out trumpeting a high uh, top bracket. I mean, they want 70%. They want 80%. I just saw Elizabeth Warren uh, trumpeting a poll that said, uh, well, I mean, the vast majority of Americans want an 80% income tax. They want income equality. These are the things they want. And so it's been the job of libertarians and others to go out and say, you know, that's not really, and they're saying we're going back, uh, we're going back to the days, the good old days, the 1950s and 60s, when we had these high income, we had very low income inequality, even a lot of big middle class, all this kind of stuff. This is what we need again, and the income tax is the thing that did that. Well, that's not necessarily true. Uh, in fact, as this piece is going to point out, those top marginal rates were barely paid. Right, so most people didn't even pay it, even though they had it on there. They just sheltered money and moved it around, and did th- did other things. Now we can all look at the current situation, look at the fact that Amazon, for example, which is Jeff Jeff Bezos, who's um, a major leftist, but I'm sure he contributes to everybody. But he's a leftist, uh, makes billions of dollars and pays zero income tax. And a lot of people, I'm sure, listen to this podcast, pay income tax, right? I mean, so we we pay it, and you got this big corporation that doesn't pay it. Now that's a little misleading. The corporation doesn't pay it. I'm sure that. Others do, um, but they're just—they're using the system the way it's designed, and it's always been designed that way. You see, that's the dirty little secret in all of this. We've got a situation where the top is going to get their just rewards out of the political economic system. The bottom now is going to get their just rewards out of the political economic system. But those in the middle, the forgotten man, as William Graham Sumner pointed out, those in the middle are going to get squeezed and crushed. Because we don't have the political clout. We don't have the money to go out and buy and lobby and buy ways to uh, secure better a better tax situation. And we're not uh, bleeding heart cases where people will say, well, that guy making X amount of dollars a year. I mean, I feel bad for that guy. No, no, it's only the people that don't. So we're not, you've you got, you, you got demagogues at the top who are pushing their own tax structure. And at the same time saying, we need to help these other people out down here. Um, and what we have is a situation where the middle class in America gets absolutely annihilated. And that's what we've seen over the last uh, half century. Uh, the middle class in America uh, has gotten squeezed quite a lot because the people in the middle, of course, pay the taxes. They got to. I mean, we don't have the tax shelters and other things that other people have. So you pay the taxes and you just smile, grin, you know, grin and bear it. Um, as you uh, write the checks at the end of the of in, in April, so let's let's read this thing. Phil Magnus again, uh, again the real history of the American income tax. One one thing people don't often realize: uh, the idea of a progressive income tax, where the rich pay more and the poor pay less, that's straight out of the Communist Manifesto. I mean, it's um, it was one of the 
one of the planks of, of socialism to have a progressive income tax. Right? I mean, it's, it's essential. If you read the Communist Manifesto and you go down the line and the things that we have in America, to say that we don't live in socialism is ridiculous. We already live in socialism. And I talked about this in the State of the Union Address uh, podcast I did not long ago. Uh, we already have it in America. To say that we're not going to be a socialist country, what country are you living in? We have it. it, it it's soft socialism, but it still is. Uh, you can go down that that list of, of prescriptions for the Communist Manifesto, and you'll find that we have most of that stuff. One of the things that people say, we, well, the government doesn't, doesn't own, you still have private property in America, do you? Can I do anything I want with my property? If I have a pond in the front of my house, is that not considered a wetland sometimes? And I can't even do it. If I have a certain rare animal or bird species that just so happens to plop down in my yard, if I own land, then I can't do anything with my land. Can I sell my property whoever I want to or not sell it to whoever I want to? I can't do any of that. Uh, if I own property, can I say these people can be here and these people can't be there? I mean, so you, 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 don't, you don't control your property anymore. Um, it's it's not yours. The government determines what you do with your property. Your, your income is not your property. They get their cut first. So there's no private property in America. The government controls the telecommunications and transportation. They regulate it all extensively. I can't just start a radio station if I want to. No. The government controls all that. Uh, they, control, they control every aspect of the communication industry. Uh, the only thing that's really free is the Internet, and they're trying to control that more. I mean, so you've got You've got to push there. And then transportation, pfft, completely controlled by the general government. You can't just go out. I mean, you can. You've got to drive, drive a vehicle, get caught, though. You get you get uh, fined, maybe put in prison for driving without a license. I can't just go operate any vehicle I want. So it's all regulated. And some people might say, well, that's good. I mean, we don't want people to don't have to fly a plane, fly in a plane. I, I understand that. I mean, so but it's all regulated, right? So the government controls the transportation industry, the communication industry. They, they control your property. Um, it's where we are. But let's start with this uh, real history of the American income tax. And a couple things, there's parts that I'll pause and, and elaborate a little more. The 70% income tax scheme of Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the closely related wealth tax proposal of Senator Elizabeth Warren would take federal taxation into historically unprecedented territory. You would not know that, though, from listening to the academic supporters of this newly fashionable cause of progressive taxation. To advocates of these policies, such as economist, economist Thomas Piketty, Emmanuel Saez, and Gabriel Zuckman, they simply seek to restore an allegedly lost progressive legacy of high-income taxation from the early and middle 20th century. Piketty made this argument in the Boston Globe earlier this week, suggesting that the Ocasio-Cortez and Warren proposal simply correct a historical amnesia in place since 1980 when a succession of Republican presidents allegedly turned their backs on the true origins of income taxation. Part of Piketty's narrative rests on misleading statistics. He points to the high statutory rates of the mid-20th century, averaging 81% on the top income bracket between 1930 and 1980. Yet, as we've discussed before, nobody actually paid those rates or anywhere close to them. The effective tax rate, that is, the portion of total income earnings that individuals actually pay to the government, was much lower in the same period. Using the early 1960s as a benchmark, it hovered just over 40% for $1 million earners despite an average statutory rate absent deductions, nearly twice that and a top marginal rate in excess of 90%. So it's 50% less, right? But by Ketty's histor history is faulty on another account. According to his telling, 
Income taxation itself was the original answer to spiraling inequality in the late 19th century. Quote, between 1880 and 1910, while the concentration of industrial and financial wealth was gaining momentum in the United States and the country was threatening to become almost as unequal as old Europe, a powerful political movement in favor of an improved distribution of wealth was developing. This led to the creation of a federal tax on income in 1913 and on inheritances in 1916. End quote. Even Piketty's basic historical narrative, however, does not hold up to scrutiny. So, this is true. I mean, you got the left out there running around, and we've, I just mentioned Elizabeth Warren in the tweet. I think it was a tweet today I saw that she uh, posted something about that. Oh, all Americans love this. Progressive. They, want, they want a graduated income tax. The rich get hammered. Just hammer the rich. Take it all from them. Because the theory, of course, is that if they do that, everybody's going to drive around in a Rolls Royce. And we're all going to have major mansions and all these other things. I mean, it's just stupid. Of course, they want people who don't aren't willing to work, just don't want to work. Give them a paycheck. They don't want to work, just give them a paycheck anyways. Who cares? What's going to happen there, I can tell you. I mean, it's simple. It's logical. Uh, but, I mean, people have tried this over and over and over again in American history, and not just American history, world history. Now, one of my favorite examples is a stupid utopian experiment in Massachusetts called Brook Farm, um, which nobody worked. Right. Uh, they called the center, uh, the center building, the hive. And uh, people like Nathaniel Hawthorne went and stayed there. And then they wrote books about how stupid it was. Um, so nobody worked. Obviously, a uh, few people did all the work and most people did nothing. That's socialism for you. And we can try, We could see this for all kinds of utopian experiments in American history. And again, world history where people just if you say you're going to get paid not to work. Well, pff, why do I work? Who cares? I'm just going to sit here and do nothing. Why work? So then he continues, the forgotten origins of the federal income tax. The federal income tax came into being after the ratification of the 16th Amendment in 1913. But its purpose had little to do with correcting income inequality. Rather, the income tax origins traced through an obscure debate over another issue that's seen a resurgence of attention in recent years, the protective tariff. Now, this is almost 100% accurate, and he does come back and say later on that the income tax, he talks about the the income tax in the 1860s and 70s. The origins of the American income tax actually begin in the 1860s during the War for Southern Independence or the Civil War with the Republican-controlled Congress. It was the, the Republicans passed revenue acts that were designed to raise revenue to support the war. They were borrowing money, but they're also going to tax more. And I remember uh, when I was working on my dissertation on James Byard, who was against all this stuff, he talked about this, you know, telling his son, get gold because we're going to inflate the currency, we're going to destroy it, we're going to tax, we're going to do all kinds of stupid things. And he was voting against all of it, but he was telling his son, just go get gold, go take care of that, get gold, because that's the only way you're going to save your finances is to get gold. Uh, so it actually begins there, and he does mention later on that this tax was later declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court, and that's true. This was part of the major recreation and reconstruction of America, which I get into in that course from McClanahan Academy that I'm working on right now, as we, not as we speak now, but of course I've been working on it uh, when I'm not podcasting and doing everything else. Uh, but that course is just going to be fantastic. I mean, it, it, what I do is rip apart every single stupid idea of the nationalists in the, uh, the Gilded Age, the Reconstruction Period, New South, um, it's uh, the whole point of that course is to rip apart nationalism. 
The story of the 16th Amendment, he continues, begins in early 1909 after President William Howard Taft called upon Congress to revise the existing tariff schedule of the United States. Tariffs at the time were technically a revenue generator. Before the income tax, import taxes actually provided the largest share of the federal government's revenue stream. This is 100% accurate. In fact, even Calhoun, when he railed against protective measures, would say, we can have revenue-producing tariffs. And the point of a revenue-producing tariff was to keep other taxes low. That's why you had it. Now, think about this for a second. First of all, I'm saying Calhoun, South. Think South. Now, not everyone in the South was on board with this, but the South was driving this particular narrative. Revenue taxes, revenue tariffs only keep taxes low, raise revenue off the tariff, because they were concerned about what Calhoun called the benefits and burdens of the Union. He said as much in the 1820s. The benefits and burdens of the Union. As long as the benefits and burdens are distributed equally in the Union, we have a Union. When we don't have that anymore, we don't have a Union. So what happens? The war begins, you see an increase in the tariff. In uh, 1861, before the war actually began, but you had the moral tariff, went up later. It, there was a little bit of reduction after the war, but then it went right back up, and you had gradually uh, increasing tariffs in, uh, during the Reconstruction period and then into the late 19th century. Uh, you did have a sort of a reduction in, uh, during the Cleveland administration, and again, Magnus gets into that. Uh, but then you didn't really see major reduction until the Woodrow Wilson administration. He's going to talk about that in this, and I'm going to explain why that was possible outside of what he says, okay, and where ideology comes in this, where the South actually works into this. Uh, because of the complexities of international trade, however, a revenue tariff also provided ample opportunity to extend heavy protectionism to politically connected industries by selectively imposing high rates on their foreign comp competitors. Tariff schedule revisions in the 19th century accordingly became a political free-for-all of bribes, backroom deals, and favor trading. This particular approach to lawmaking heavily advantaged the philosophy of protectionism, both by offering it political cover under the auspices of raising revenue and by advantaging legislative log rolling, the practice of bundling hundreds or even thousands of political favors together in the same bill in order to secure enough support to pass Congress. As a result... The period between the Civil War and the early 1900s produced a nearly uninterrupted succession of high protective revenue tariffs. But we knew there were protective tariffs. I mean, it was clear, right? When President Taft issued his call in 1909, he actually hinted at a desire to see the existing tariff rates reduced and the schedule revised to improve its stated revenue objectives. In the hands of Congress, however, the tariff schedule revision became a personal project of Senator Nelson Aldrich of Rhode Island. Rhode Island, New England, an arch protectionist and master of legislative procedure. Under his watchful eye, the Payne Aldrich tariff, became, bearing his name, quickly developed into an even more protectionist rate schedule than the older statue it was replacing. Aldrich's seeming, seeming uh, I'm sorry, Aldrich's scheming presented a political conundrum for free traders, most of them clustered in the Senate's Democratic minority. Free trade had lost almost every major tariff fight in the previous five decades. Even when the Democrats enjoyed a congressional majority in the White House in 1894, their, their attempt to lower the tariff schedules rates across the board quickly succumbed to the same forces of log rolling and favor trading. Cronyism whittled away most of the proposed cuts in the legislative process, as even nominally free trade Democrats discovered they could use the tariff to secure favors for their home districts. By 1909, Aldrich, battling Aldrich directly over tariffs meant certain failure. Shortly after Aldrich brought his bill to the Senate floor in April 1909, 
Democratic Senator Joseph Weldon Bailey of Texas, of Texas, right from the South. So what you see here very clearly is a New England South split. And I'm going to talk about why this is important when we get to the Underwood Tariff. Decided on a bold alternative strategy. Rather than attack the tariff head-on and ensuring their defeat, Bailey executed a flanking move to try to drain the Payne Aldrich bill of, of its political support. He proposed a parallel federal income tax, aiming to partially swap this new source of tax rev intake for the revenue stream that came from tariff assessments. If tariffs are no longer the primary source of federal tax revenue, Bailey reasoned, the protectionists would lose cover that the tariff schedule provided for higher discriminatory rates against foreign competitor industries. Now, why is Bailey doing this? And when we get to Underwood, it's very clear. He's proposing an income tax. But not as, I mean, Magnus is right here, not as a way to tax the rich. Though, though, when Southerners were looking at this entire situation, you've got the Gilded Age going, here we are, it's, it's 1909, we're right at the end of the Gilded Age, I mean, you got massive industry. Southerners felt like they were getting crushed, and they had been crushed since 1865. Well, here's a way to hit back. You've got the protectionists, the Hamiltonians. Well, what do you do? You take away their effort for corporate welfare, crony capitalism, and then you, which the tax there is paid by a larger number of people, and you hammer just the few at the top with an income tax. You see, you take away, you target the tax and take away the tax from a larger swath of the population, which included millions of Southerners. You see, this is Jeffersonianism uh, and it's using the general government to advance a Jeffersonian agenda. This is one thing people don't often realize about this period of time. Southerners were still interested in that. Uh, they're still looking at this in the same way Calhoun did. You've got to benefit all and burden all equally. We're not going to do that. If you're going to create a system that doesn't do that, we're going to use it to get you back. And that's exactly what's happening here. Bailey's plans still face substantial obstacles. For one, his income tax bill would face almost a certain, certain Supreme Court challenge if it ever became law. An 1895 case struck down a core provision from a previous iteration of the income tax as being subject to the Constitution's restriction on direct taxation. Bailey knew this, however, and fully intended to force a new court ruling with the belief that a carefully worded bill could reverse the earlier 5-4 to four court decision. Second, the Democrats were still in the minority with only 32 of 92 Senate seats. In order for Bailey's plan to work, and this is the Republican, look, again, something I talk about in, in the Reconstruction classes, this is the Republican-dominated government. I mean, the Republicans are the ones that gave us, the party that gave us what we have today. Every nasty thing you can think of, the Republicans gave it to us. Not the Democrats. It's the Republicans in many ways. I mean, you can say, well, yeah, but what about Frank Roosevelt, Lyndon Johnson, all the... Republicans were behind um, many of those proposals. I mean, so Reconstruction is not just economic, it's political, it's social. Lots of things going on here. The Republicans, New England Republicans, gave us America in 2019. In order for Bailey's plan to work, they would need to peel away approximately 15 Republicans to back the income tax. The task was not unfeasible. The Republicans' ranks included about 10 to 12 progressive insurgents who favored more expansive taxation to finance other social aims and who signaled an interest in supporting the income tax. A handful of other Republicans were growing lukewarm on the party's perfectionist line, which primarily benefited industrial states in the Northeast at the expense of agricultural exporting states in the West. This is an important part 
of understanding the Republican Party. The Republican Party was a coalition in 1854 of New England industrialists and Western farmers. Their only unifying goal, well, two of them, internal improvements, federally funded internal improvements, and the other was keeping blacks out of the West. Whether it was slave or free, they wanted them out. Free soil, free labor, free men. That was it. Um, It wasn't anti-slavery, even though the party was certainly anti-slavery. It wasn't um, it was an abolitionist. There is a difference uh, between abolitionists and anti-slavery. Uh, it was anti-slavery, particularly in the Western territories. None of that there. And when the after the war, a lot of these Western farmers who later became populist and other things realized they cut a bad deal. They cut a deal with uh, with a very bad group of people in New England industrialists who weren't really going to help them. By early May 1909, Aldrich publicly admitted that Bailey might have the votes to pull off his proposed income tax for tariffs revenue swap and temporarily suspended the consideration of the tariff bill on the Senate floor to buy himself time to regroup. The parliamentary maneuver triggered almost two months of complex legislative jockeying as Aldrich and Bailey courted votes from senators on the fence. The stalemate finally broke on June 29, 1909, when Aldrich forced withdrawal of Bailey's measure by engineering a surprise vote on a parliamentary procedure when Bailey was absent from the floor. The Payne-Aldrich tariff became law a few weeks later and, true to expectations, imposed overtly protectionist rates upon the competitors of thousands of politically connected manufacturing firms. Aldrich paid a steep price to preserve his tariff, though. In order to peel away enough votes from Bailey's competing income tax bill, he had to offer a consolation prize. In exchange for other senators abandoning the Bailey plan, he would permit a a constitutional amendment to come to the floor in its place, thereby resolving the obstacles to income taxation caused by the 1896 Supreme Court ruling and avoiding the need for another future court challenge on the subjects. From these obscure origins in the the turn-of-the-century tariff politics, the 16th Amendment was born. The tariff origins on the federal income tax pose a serious complication to Piketty's narrative as they contradict the motive he assigns to the policy. Although some of the 10 to 12-member insurgent bloc of Republicans veered closer to Piketty's narrative, the majority of the income tax backers in 1909 did so out of support for free trade and a belief that the proposed revenue swap would finally break the stranglehold of protectionism over the federal revenue system. Now, this is sort of true. This is, again, where I think that he gets the backing. Yeah, Southerners had long supported free trade, but and that's part of it, but something else is going on here. We're still living in these divided times of uh, you know American strong American political divisions over North-South. And Southerners, who were primarily behind all of these uh, proposals, um, when we get to the Underwood tariff, uh, Southerners recognize that this is the way, this is, the, this is what you do to get back at New England. You cut their protectionist tariff, and then you tax them. You see, it was a way to harm the section, the block that had done the greatest harm to the South. For a brief moment, the Democrats' policy actually worked. Voters punished the Republican Congress in 1910, in part due to backlash against their overreach on the Payne-Aldrich tariff. The election placed the House into Democratic hands and increased Democrat numbers in the Senate by seven seats. Riding on this wave, along with a festering progressive rift in the Republican Party, Democrats won both chambers in the White House in 1912. With these electoral outcomes heralded, a progressive turn of their own in national politics under Woodrow Wilson. Wilson, it delivered 
Woodrow Wilson, it delivered exactly none of the characteristics that Piketty attributes to the motive in early history of the income tax. In 1913, using the newly ratified amendment, Congress adopted the Underwood Tariff Act, a sweeping rate reduction that successfully returned the most egregiously protective rates of the Payne Aldrich schedule, and as Bailey had promised four years earlier, swapped them for a new federal income tax to sustain the government's revenue stream. Now, Oscar Underwood is one of the most important and underrated senators from the state of Alabama. Underwood wrote a little book. He's very conservative, very much a Jeffersonian. And he said, you know, essentially what he's getting at here is the general government's running rush out of the Constitution. New England is bad. So what can we do to straighten that out? Where they're going to all push a very Jeffersonian, John Taylor of Caroline type agenda, which involves lower tariffs, you know, less government regulation, all these kind of things. And so <clears throat> opposing, or the, the Underwood tariff was important because of the Southern stamp on the Underwood Tariff. Henry Dillamar Clayton, Arsene Pujo, Carter Glass, all of these people, Henry Stegall, all of these people, all these Southern Democrats were really just Jeffersonians. They were really just Calhounites, uh, but they're not called that. The Underwood Act's, Underwood's Act's income tax provision only applied to wealthy earners, but it did not exact the exorbitant rates of Piketty's narrative. The graduated schedule of the original 1913 tax stopped out, topped out at only 7%, assessed against all income above $500,000, which, again, that's a lot of money today. So very few people were actually paying this. 7%, though, top income rate. Congress did not turn to higher marginal rates until later in the decade, but strictly as a war finance measure to fund the United States' entry into World War I. Wars are always bad for tax increases. Fact of life. One that would make you not want to support war. Income tax revisions in 1917 and 18 raised the top rates to a peak 77% on income above $1 million. But Congress quickly cut these rates once the war was over. After a series of smaller reductions from 1919 to 1924, they settled on a top marginal rate of only 25% on incomes above $100,000. 25%, only 25, just one quarter. Incomes above $100,000, which is a lot of money back then, right? The high mid-century income tax schedule that Piketty is so fond of traces, an, it traces its own origin not to the protective wealth redistribution, but to another badly misguided attempt at revenue collection. In the midst of the Great Depression and facing a mounting annual budget deficits, President Herbert Hoover proposed and signed the Revenue Act of 1932 in a last-ditch attempt to close the gap before the election. This is one of the disasters of the Hoover, Hoover administration. And in fact, uh, Roosevelt ran on the fact that Hoover was a tax-and-spend guy. He taxed too much, spent too much. He only just, Roosevelt just went and did it all on steroids. It was this measure that inaugurated high rates, settling at 63% on income over $1 million. Although the measure only exacerbated existing strains on the economy, it handed Hoover's successor, Franklin D. Roosevelt, an, ex an existing progressive tax rate structure that he further ratchets up towards its mid-century peak. Piketty, of course, embraces this second wave of income tax increases as vindication of his theory that high progressive tax rates drive down inequality. But even a generous reading of income tax history suggests that the evolution came about not as a conscious inequality alleviation policy, but rather haphazardly and through several successive steps motivated primarily by the desire for increased federal revenue to finance wartime and then Depression-era spending programs. So people were going after a tax so they could pay off war debt and have some spending 
here that was ridiculously unconstitutional. Yet, as we've also seen, Piketty's casual story is wrong. The high-income tax rates at the mid-century mark did not cause wealthy people to disappear and did not relocate their forms downward. They simply induced the wealthiest carriers to engage in income shifting to take advantage of the, nu- of the numerous deductions, credits, and legal income shelters that have been incorporated into the tax code. The result was the, once, was the one mentioned at the beginning of this article. The wealthiest earners paid effective tax rates at mid-century that set well below their statutory obligations and only slightly higher than what they are today. Income tax history provides many lessons on both the effects and perils of high rates. Foremost among these is a tendency to incentivize excuse me, tax avoidance behavior by the wealthiest earners. It does not, however, provide the self-evident argument for high taxation, high income taxation, or a completely novel wealth tax today, the Bichetti assumes. In addition to flubbing basic facts, his account of the 20th century tax history comes across as an attempt to retrofit historical events to his own modern policy agenda. No, nobody would do that. Nobody would do that. Responsible historians and commentators should resist the temptation of this faulty message. No, his, no economist or historian would fit the stuff to their needs. No way. No way. Piketty wouldn't do such bad things. But here you have it. You've got the history. I mean, it's a, it's a good general overview. Of, there's a couple of points that he doesn't get into. Um, but it's a good general overview of taxation and one that you should really read and, and of course, pay attention to. Uh, because it does destroy this leftist narrative of uh, 1950s high-income taxes were why we were so prosperous. See, we're going to tax ourselves into prosperity. just doesn't make any sense. So I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. Go out and pick up Phil Magnus's books. Go out and read this thing again. Uh, I'll, I'll link to it in my email that you get if you give me an email address. you got to give me that email address because you get an email when I do these podcasts. You get it, and I'll talk about it a little bit. Put the link in there. People have asked about show notes. I don't do show notes because I don't do show notes because I do emails. So when the podcast comes out, you get the email, and that's where the links are, and I talk about some things in that. All right, well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. I will see you next time.